My name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team, and it's a joy to be here with you today, and it's a joy to be back. Uh, my wife, Taya, and I, we just got back from visiting my parents in North Carolina, which, if you've heard my voice, my accent so far, you're like, North Carolina? No, no Rob, that's not where your voice is from, and you're right, kind of. Uh, I'm from the UK, but my family moved when I was 11 to North Carolina. My parents have been there now for a very long time. Um, and it's a lot hotter in North Carolina than in England. It's a lot hotter in North Carolina than, than here. Uh, it was 37 degrees while we were down there. Uh, they've got air conditioning, and we, we don't here. But air conditioning makes such a difference. Like this weekend, 29 degrees yesterday. That was like the lowest high they had there. It was like comfortable. And yesterday I was just sweating. It's like, oh, this is awful. Anyway, <laughs> different climate. Uh, and at, when we got there, my mom was like, oh, I want to plant things that actually grow in this climate. And she was just looking around trying to figure out what can grow in that kind of heat. And she realized that fig trees can grow in that climate. And she was like, this is perfect. So she planted a fig tree right in front of the house. And over the years, this fig tree just loved this location. The fig tree is now as tall as the house, which is kind of wild. And every summer, it produces more figs than my parents know what to do with. So starting about mid to late June, so probably next week, my parents are going to be inundated with figs. They're going to start having figs at every single meal. It gets kind of boring by the end of August. But they're going to have figs at every single meal. My mom's going to start making fig jam like no one's business. And she still hasn't finished fig jam from three years ago. It's still in the pantry. But she's going to keep making it because there's figs and she needs to do something with them. She's going to start giving figs away to anyone she sees, to her friends, just random people on the street. She's going to start inviting her friends to come over to start picking figs for her because she can't keep up. And then when they've had enough figs, she's going to go to the neighbors next door and plead with them, please, can you please come and take some of these figs? Because I don't know what to do with them. This fig tree, it, it's strong and it's vibrant. And it's a really fruitful tree. And it's incredible how much fruit this thing can produce. And as I've been sitting in this passage getting ready for today, I've been struck by this fig tree that my parents have. Because in our passage today, we, we learn about a fig tree that is not producing fruit. Uh, this is a parable, and it, it might be one of the most puzzling parables that Jesus ever says. And it's part of a wider conversation that Jesus is having, which just kind of leaves us scratching our heads a bit. Just earlier when, when Paul was reading our passage, he was supposed to say, this is the word of the Lord, and we were all supposed to say, thanks be to God. He, he just whispered, confessed to me, I think I need to practice my Anglicanism. Um, but actually, it's kind of perfect, because honestly, when we hear that text, we kind of want to have a question mark at the thanks be to God, don't we? Like, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But things, this is the word of the Lord. But what on earth does it mean? Today, we're looking at a really difficult saying of Jesus. We're continuing in our series through Luke, which we've been off and on for the last number of years, and and then we come to this text. And, and I want to echo something which Phil has been saying for the last number of, of weeks to us, and, and it's this. I want to invite you to be curious today. Because Jesus is going to challenge us with these words. And it's really easy to get defensive. But our, if our defenses are up, then we can't really hear what it is that Jesus is trying to say to us. So will you be curious with me? Because this is the word of the Lord. And I want to know what it says. As we explore this passage today, I'm going to stretch my, my preaching alliteration muscles. And I want to focus on three things. I want to focus on the conversation, the confutation, which is a word, and the clarification. 
So the conversation, confutation, and the clarification. So if, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Uh, you can open it up if you've got a physical Bible. If you didn't get a physical Bible, there's some in the back in the lobby too, which you can go grab. You can turn on your phone and illuminate your, your, your faces with the warmth of the screen. And everything will also be on the screen behind me too. So Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. As we explore this passage, I think it's important for us to see that there's a conversation going on here, which, which has already been going on. These people, they're, they're talking about current events in their day, and, and they're discussing them like it's breaking news. Something scandalous and shocking has taken place. It was awful. And the people want to talk about it. So some people come up to Jesus and say, hey, have you heard what Pilate just did? Pilate just, just killed a bunch of people in the temple. What do you make of that, Jesus? This is a shocking event. It's scandalous. Now, Pilate was, was the Roman governor of Judea. And he was, he was known to have a bit of a beef with the people who lived in Galilee. Uh, and politicians could get especially cruel 2,000 years ago. They can get cruel today, too. But 2,000 years ago, Pilate really set the bar a little too high with his cruelty. And there are historical reports which tell us that Pilate could be especially cruel to his political rivals. And he was not above using military force to put people down. On a handful of occasions, we know that Pilate sent his soldiers, disguised in plain clothes, into a crowd of protesters. And at his command, they would take out their swords and cut down everyone who was protesting against him. So I have to say, being a member of the opposition party 2,000 years ago was a really hazardous occupation. And from what we can gather, it seems that there have been some political opponents at this time from Galilee who were visiting Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And Pilate was intent to put them down. So he looked for some opportune moment to, to attack, to strike, when they would least expect it. And he sent his soldiers into the temple when they were worshiping to attack. And when people get attacked during worship services today, it's, it's horrible. And we've got a word for it. We call it terrorism, don't we? And it wouldn't have been anything less than that 2,000 years ago. It would have been just as scandalous, just as tragic, just as awful. And actually, probably even more so for them. Because that was something which just didn't really happen very much at all. It was the most extreme thing you could do. And it was then the talk around town. People were saying, did you hear what just happened? How could Pilate do that? But that wasn't the only current event that was happening in that day and age. There was something else that had happened too, that there'd been a bad accident in the city. A tower had collapsed and people had died in its wake. And this is the only historical record we have of this specific tower falling in Jerusalem. But ancient historians didn't always record every single accident that happened around them. Like when accidents occur in our midst today, in our world today, it becomes breaking news. When, when bridges collapse or, or buildings fall, it makes the headlines, especially when Philadelphia can fix a, a highway in two weeks, which is incredible. I wish that could happen more often. But 
ancient historians, they didn't really care about that stuff. Like, eh, accidents. What they cared about was the deliberate, intentional actions and decisions of politicians and their rivals. And that's what the ancient historians would used to write about. And so the fact that this is the only account I, that we have, I, I don't think that really belittles this historical reality. I think it actually is just something that we should expect when we're talking about an accident. Actually, Jesus is making a point to say, no, this accident actually does matter. And it seems that there had been a, a, a tower in Jerusalem near the Pool of Siloam. And this tower was probably a part of the, the fortifications of the city of Jerusalem. And an accident had happened with it. It fell down and people had died. And that was also one of the things that people were talking about in their day. They were saying, did you hear what happened? How could the tower fall on all those people? How awful. And it was awful. It was tragic. All of these things were awful and tragic. And people wanted to talk about them. And they wanted to talk about them with Jesus. But Jesus is about to completely change the direction of this conversation. And I just want to name that up front. I want to name this up front. That this passage actually might be kind of frustrating for some of us. Maybe for all of us. Because Jesus is not intent to have the conversation that we want to have. In fact, Jesus is going to have a conversation with us that we'd really prefer not to have with him. The theologian Houston Gonzalez says, this is a text most of us avoid because it raises a number of thorny questions, particularly age-old questions of why tragedies occur. But the passage does not answer those questions. Jesus does not give us a ready-made answer. You see, the people who were talking to Jesus wanted to ask him about the current events of their day. They wanted to get into these thorny questions with him. But he just says to them, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Oh, does that seem odd to anybody else? Hand raises, no hand raises, yep. It's a little odd, right? Like, Jesus, are you not listening to this conversation? Are you not aware of what's going on here? Are you you paying attention? What's the deal? Why is Jesus responding to issues of suffering with a message of repentance? Why is he over-spiritualizing this? It seems kind of this backwards, irrelevant response. And because of that, it can actually feel kind of tempting for me, and probably even for some of us, to begin to write Jesus' response off and say, "Eh, I'm just going to skip over this one. But before we write him off, I want to invite us to hold on to that curiosity. And maybe let's just give him a little bit of credit. After all, no matter where you land on, on the claims of Christianity about Jesus, Jesus was and is one of the most important religious figures of all time. I think he is the most important, personally. That's, that's my, my conviction. And if I, if I trust my optometrist to help me to see properly, and if I trust my physio to help my body to move properly, then I think I can trust, and I think we can trust, Jesus to know what he's doing here. So as we consider this conversation, there's also another really important detail that I just want to point out to us. And and it's a detail that the pastor Tim Keller helped me to see. And it's going to help us really understand a lot more about this passage and this conversation. See, Jesus is also, he's talking to a very specific group of people. The people he's talking to here, they aren't people who've had a tower fall on their heads. And now, maybe that seems kind of obvious. Like, of course, they haven't had a towel on their heads. But actually, that really matters. Jesus is having a conversation with people who have not had a towel on them. 
These are people who are not suffering. You see, there are many other places in Scripture where we can go which provide words of comfort for us when towers fall on our heads. This is not one of those passages, is it? If we have questions about suffering, this is not the place to look. This is not the place to look for an answer, and this is not the place to come for comfort. Because Jesus is having a different kind of conversation. He's having a conversation with people who are not suffering. In fact, he's talking to a pretty religious and moral group of people, and their lives are actually pretty comfortable. It's going pretty well for them. They're doing the religious things that they're meant to do. They're showing up to worship on the weekend, and they're keeping the rules pretty well. And yeah, some big events have been happening in their day and age, around their cities, around their lives, and they want to talk about those things. But all things considered, their lives are actually pretty comfortable. And it's to these people that Jesus is having a conversation. It's these people who are not stuck underneath the falling tower. And so with all of that in mind, I want to press deeper into this conversation. This moves me to my second point, which is the confutation. The confutation. Now, preachers are meant to, to use alliteration to help make the points more sticky. Confutation is a fancy word that means refuting or, or debunking an idea. You see, behind this conversation, there is an idea. There's an assumption, an unspoken question that these people are asking Jesus. And we can hear this question in the way that Jesus responds to them. In verse 2, Jesus says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. And then to jump down to verse 4, Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. You see, in the ancient Jewish mindset, if someone suffered or if calamity struck, it was because someone had sinned, it's because someone had done something wrong. And we could call this a theology of retribution. It was, it's kind of like karma, actually. If I do something bad and sinful, then something bad is going to happen to me too. And we see this assumption made even more explicit in an encounter in John chapter 9. In John 9, we read, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus. Do you hear the assumption? Something bad happened, therefore, someone must have sinned. Someone's sin was so great, they thought, they must have done something so bad, that now God is punishing them for it. That's the assumption that they're making. And Jesus replies, no. No, they're not more guilty. No, they're not more sinful than anybody else. That's not it. When tragedies strike, we try to make sense of why it happens. And we can often have one of two ways of looking at it. We can have this, this first view, which we could maybe chalk up to like a religious moralism. I think it actually might be more helpful to, to name this as a personal cause kind of approach to understanding tragedies. We say, I must have done something wrong. We blame the people who are underneath the tower, who are trapped under the tower, and, and we assume that there was something that that person did to deserve it. And that might sound pretty harsh. It does sound actually really harsh. And maybe we wouldn't go out and say that that's what we think or believe. But there's an operating assumption and principle behind how a lot of our world works. And I think we can see this most clearly actually when we flip it around and think about how good things happen to us. And in the movie The Sound of Music, there's a moment in the movie where two of the main characters are falling in love, they've fallen in love, and 
they burst into a song, as is appropriate in the sound of music, um, and they sing, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. For here you are, standing there, loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. When everything is going well, we assume we must have done something right. We must have done something good. And if that's the logic we adopt when things are going well, then doesn't that also implicitly mean that we also believe the opposite too? Doesn't that also mean that when things go wrong, we assume that we've done something wrong? This can often have those overtones of religious moralism, but, but I think we can better call it a matter of personal cause. I caused this. I made the tower fall down. Or because I'm, I'm better or because I'm worse than those people or because they're better or they're worse than me. That's one way that people can look at things. There's a second one too. Instead of this sort of religious moralism, personal cause thing, and instead of blaming those people who are under the tower, instead we can blame people who are over the tower instead. We chalk it up to, to fate or to God. We blame life, the universe, and everything. If you're into the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's all 42. Life is absurd and unfair. And if we can figure out all that life is meant to be about, then all of a sudden life is going to become more absurd and unfair. And the second approach is to look for an impersonal cause. And to both of these things, Jesus says, not really, no. We can chalk it up to all the responsibilities of those under the tower, or we can make it the responsibility of those over the tower. It's either personal or it's impersonal. These people who are not crushed underneath the tower are coming to Jesus and they're saying, why? Why do towers fall down? And Jesus frustrates us. He flips the script. And he changes the question. He changes the question. He says, no, guys, you're looking at this all wrong. This isn't the way you should be looking at it. You're trying to figure out why the tower fell down. But the real question that you should be asking, he says, is why did the tower not fall on me? Why did the tower not fall on me? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. They didn't suffer this way because they were more sinful than anyone else. You see, we are just as sinful as them. He's debunking their entire approach to looking at the world. He's pulling the carpet out from underneath their feet, and he's saying, actually, you deserve to have a towel fall on your head too. Repent. Repent. Now, if that's strange and uncomfortable to your ears, then actually that means I'm in really good company. Because I find this really strange and really uncomfortable to listen to, really uncomfortable to hear. This whole conversation led to this, this confutation that I did not expect. And it's left me feeling pretty confused. Maybe it's left you feeling pretty confused too. And I feel like I need some clarification. Why does Jesus say repent? Why is Jesus saying all this? Let's see if, if we can keep digging in a little bit more and see if we can gain some, some clarity of what it is that Jesus is saying here. 
This comes to my third point, the clarification. You see, Jesus tries to help us understand why he's putting his finger on this point in this conversation. And the way he seeks to clarify all of this is, is to say a parable. It's a parable about a fig tree. And in verse 9, we read, Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree. I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. Now, what does any of that have to do with anything else in this passage? That was my legitimate question when I read through this. That may very well be your legitimate question too. How does any of this fit together? But for Jesus, this whole conversation has been about repentance. He's not trying to tell us why God allows suffering. That's not what he's interested in talking, to, talking about in this passage. He's trying to get us to see the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to give us eyes to see him clearly. And then so also to see ourselves more clearly too. Just imagine with me that you were actually there having this conversation with Jesus. You're there having this conversation with Jesus. There's someone who has not had a tower fall on you. And Jesus has just undermined your entire way of understanding why things happen in the world. And then he tells you this parable. You're just like, what on earth? I, I would be feeling a little disoriented and confused myself being in those shoes. But I'll also be trying to figure out who the fig tree is meant to be. And I'd be thinking about this whole conversation he's been having with me and thinking back and going... So is the fig tree the, the Galileans? I mean, maybe that could... No, that doesn't work, though, because the Galileans were just killed by Pilate. They were just cut down, so they can't be the fig tree in this parable. That doesn't quite work. So maybe instead of those people who were under the tower, maybe it was people under the tower who were meant to be this fig tree, right? But the tower fell on them. So either their extra year just ran out, or I'm not seeing this quite right, but also Jesus just said that all of these people under the tower are just as sinful as everybody else in Jerusalem. So that doesn't quite make sense either. So who does that leave? Who does that leave? Who else could this fig tree be? Well, it's me. I'm the only one left, right? I am the fig tree. I am that fig tree that is not producing fruit. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, John the Baptist says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, Jesus wants for us to bear fruit. He wants us first to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he wants us first to be filled with the presence of God and come fully alive in him. He wants us to become vibrant fig trees in this vineyard that, that thrive and yield an abundant harvest. But to do that, we need to see repentance the way that Jesus does. 
We need to have eyes to see sin and repentance more clearly and grow in our understanding of what it means to actually repent. So often we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And Jesus is shaking up that question because there's a major assumption in it. I'm good. I mean, that's what we kind of believe about ourselves, right? I'm not that bad of a person. I'm, I'm pretty good. That's the assumption that's undergirding this entire conversation. It's an assumption that Jesus debunks. He says, what makes you so sure about that? The, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he, he used to say that all of life is repentance. Or that the pastor Tish Harrison Warren, she says that repentance is the drumbeat of the Christian life. This past year in our catechism class, uh, I had someone ask the question, why do we confess our sins every week? Like on Sunday mornings during a worship service, why do we confess our sins every single week? Why was once not enough? And I love this question. I love this question because it's such a good question. It's a question which comes from paying attention to the teachings of Jesus and comes from paying attention to the practices of this church amidst living in the sea of the modern world, especially living in the midst of a postmodern Western society. Because if we were to try to express the conviction and wisdom of our own day and age, of what Vancouverites think outside of this building, and probably even some of us in this room too, we really can't do much better than the words of the poet William Ernest Henley. He, he wrote a poem called Invictus. And he writes, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The title Invictus, he gives it, uh, it means victorious or in victory over something. And Henley is boasting that he is not bound by religious pretense or by religious belief. He says it matters not how straight the gate and how charged with punishments that scroll. The way religion teaches us to live, the, the virtuous moral life and the consequences for not living it, Henley says that doesn't matter to me. I reject it. I reject it, and I choose my own way, actually, because I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. And our society teaches us to live this way. You are the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. You, not, not God, you, not Jesus Christ, you. And friends, this is the heart of sin. This is the heart of sin. You see, sin is not simply just breaking some rules which God gave us to keep. That's sinful, sure. We could probably uh, label that lowercase s, sin. But at its core, sin is when we say something other than God is the captain of my soul. Because if God is God and is the maker of all things and the sustainer of all things, then God is the one who gets the say on how we live. And when we say to God, I'm not content for you to be the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. I'm not content for you to sit on the throne of my life. I am the captain now. We reach over to him, we take the crown off of his head, and we put it onto ours, and we usurp his throne. And we're committing anarchy against God. It's a cosmic anarchy. And this is the very core of sin, a heart that rejects the rule and reign of God. And that's what Jesus is putting his finger on here. When our understanding of sin is simply just doing something wrong, then our concept of repentance 
when it's just we've done something wrong, when we repent, we'll understand that repentance is only ever amounting to some form of, of moral attrition or self-flagellation to try and appease our troubled psyches. But the repentance that Jesus calls us to relies on a broader concept of sin. We could call it capital S, sin. And this amounts to a deeper meaning of repentance, too. A repentance where we put God back on his throne. And as the conversation progresses, Jesus brings this reality of sin and repentance closer and closer to the forefront of the people he's chatting with. Because these people he's talking to, these people who haven't had a tower fall on their heads, they're pretty moral people living in Jerusalem. And they have Abraham as their father. They're feeling pretty okay about themselves and about their spiritual condition, and they rely upon the merits of others to make up for their faults. And they're talking about these people who came from Galilee, from Galilee, those people over there who had this thing happen to them. And they're talking about, they're speculating about their sins. Those people over there. And Jesus says that those who died were no worse sinners than anyone else from Galilee. But the conversation's still over there. So Jesus brings it closer. Jesus brings it a little closer to home for them, and he says, what about that tower, that tower that fell? Were they more sinful than you? No. No, they were just as sinful as you. Because our spiritual condition is the same as everyone else. In and of ourselves, we are not nearly as good as we would like to believe. In fact, we are far more sinful than we could ever have imagined. But there's good news. In the parable, it says, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it, and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. Now, the good news is this. The God whose throne we have usurped, he loves us so much more than we could ever have dared to hope. He loves you so much more than you could have ever dared to hope. In God's great mercy towards us, because he desires that we would bear fruit and know him and live with him forever, Jesus is digging all around us and he's fertilizing us with the truth of his gospel, of his good news, in order that we might turn to him and say, Jesus, you are the master of my fate. You are the captain of my soul. You are the Lord and King, and I choose to trust and to follow you. The only way to experience the richness of the Christian life is to repent. The only way to experience this extravagant love of God towards us is to repent. And we cannot follow Jesus unless we repent unless we give that crown back to God and put it on his head instead and let him have his throne. See, Jesus didn't come to just bring a, be another religious teacher among many. He only ever came as Lord and King. And he's patient with us. He's unspeakably patient with you. But the claim he's making upon your life is that he's asking for all of it. All of it. And when we give ourselves to him, he gives us himself in return. All of me for all of you. I am yours, God, and you are mine. When we repent and trust and follow him, 
we begin to bear fruit. And we get the kingdom of heaven, that the presence of God dwelling inside of us and his love being poured out richly into our hearts and lives. His love starts to bubble up and it overflows. And we can't contain it. Fruit just begins to spring up and overflow and still there's more. It's incredible how much a fruit tree can produce. How many figs can fall off of a fig tree. My parents know firsthand. A strong and vibrant fig tree is a sight to behold. How much more wonderful is a strong and vibrant faith? A heart that is alive with the love of Jesus Christ. The person who is devoted and committed to Jesus Christ, filled with the love and presence of God here on earth. And that can happen because he's gracious. And there's grace upon grace upon grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. So may we become vibrant fig trees that yield abundant harvests that can never be contained. May we overflow with the love and presence of God in our own lives. And may we become fully alive together in Christ. Will you pray with me?